Ezekiel 14. As uh, Gino indicated, we're going to be in verses 12 through 23. It's always the last possible moment when all hope is lost that the hero arrives. As he battles the villains, there comes a moment when even the hero seems defeated. Not to worry. He reaches down deep into his hero reserves, strikes the final fatal blow against evil. Israel had had her share of heroes. After Joshua's conquest of the promised land, the Jews backslid. Each time God raised up a hero. They were called judges. Men like Samson and Gideon who were used mightily to overcome Israel's enemies and deliver God's people. It seems that the Jews of the 6th century held a hero mentality. Daniel had been carried away into Babylon. By the time of our text, he was around 25 years old. He'd already distinguished himself as a righteous man. Though some of his greatest accomplishments were still ahead of him, he was a bona fide hero. Perhaps God would use Daniel in Babylon to deliver the Jews in Jerusalem from further destruction. Not going to happen. Look at verse 14 for a moment. Even if these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, meaning Jerusalem. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. What an amazing trio that would be. See these guys on tour. But even if all three were in Jerusalem, God would not deliver those who were still sinning. It was God's way of telling His people to quit looking around and start looking within. It was his desire they each dare to be a Daniel in the midst of his discipline of Jerusalem. And so let's follow God's train of thought through the remainder of chapter 14. We left off last week in verse 11, and so we pick it up in verse 12. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying... Some period of time had elapsed from the first half of the chapter. We don't know how long. Ezekiel had delivered to the elders of Israel a message that God's judgment was inevitable. There was nothing they could do to avert it nationally. But they could endure it personally. God was still calling for personal repentance on the part of uh, all the Jews, and especially those in Jerusalem. In verse 13, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. God, of course, talking to Ezekiel about Israel, but it's kind of generic here. He just says a nation, and its application would be to any land that sins against him by persistent unfaithfulness. Over 20 years ago, 1988, Specialty Research Associates released a report entitled America to pray or not to pray, which used over a hundred pages of graphs and statistical analysis to prove that crime, venereal disease, premarital sex, illiteracy, suicide, drug use, public corruption, and other social ills began a dramatic increase after the Engel versus Vital Supreme Court decision was made in 1962 banning school prayer. Regardless whether or not that one decision was the starting point, as a nation, I think it could be said of the United States that 
we sin against God by persistent unfaithfulness. I, I think if you're a Christian, you generally recognize that there has been a slide uh, into uh, immorality away from God in our nation. If true, then the counsel of these verses would be just as much for us as anyone. Uh, and so it becomes uh, much more sobering as we read this. Now, the judgments listed in verse 13 were spelled out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The Jews had been forewarned many centuries earlier about how God would eventually deal with a nation uh, that was in persistent unfaithfulness, and especially his own nation, Israel. And so in verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Now, I should mention that critics argue the Daniel mentioned here is not the Daniel that we normally think of from the book of Daniel. They say, the critics, that he was too young with too much of his spiritual career ahead of him to be included in such illustrious company. You wouldn't mention this 25-year-old upstart, even though he'd done some amazing things already with men like Noah and Job. You NASCAR fans will appreciate this analogy. An interviewer was asking Jimmy Johnson the other day if it was too soon to consider him one of the greatest drivers ever. In as humble a way as possible, he said no, pointing to some of the things he'd accomplished already that no one else has or only the elite have. It's not that unusual to ascribe greatness to a person before they are old. Uh, we do this all the time. Sometimes I, th I think it is premature when they give lifetime achievement awards to people who have most of their life ahead of them, uh, you know. Uh, but nevertheless, we're familiar with this. Some people do amazing things, even at a, a very young age, and, and they are recognized for it. I see nothing to preclude Daniel from being the Daniel who wrote the book of Daniel and was Ezekiel's contemporary in exile in Babylon. As for his career... Uh, of course, the Lord, with uh, foreknowledge, knew uh, Daniel's future career and, and decided to include him in this group. And I think he's included in this group uh, because the Jews are, are getting down to their last hope in terms of how they're going to get out of this mess they've created for themselves. It's a fine mess you've gotten me into. <laughs> Who used to say that? Somebody used to say that. Abbott and Costello? Lord on Hardy? Yeah, all right, there you go. Just a moment of culture right here. You say Calvary Chapel has no culture? We have culture. How many of you know who Laurel and Hardy is? Raise your hand. All right, three of you, yeah. Abbott and Costello? Uh, let's see, who else? Uh, Rowan and Martin? Well, it's equal. Noah and Lot? No. <laughs> So, why these three men in particular? Well, the thing that strikes you is that the names are not in chronological order. This isn't the order in which you would put them. And the order might have to do with the mathematics of the number of folks delivered in each instance, since we're talking about the ability of a righteous man to deliver others with him. Noah was famous for preparing the ark and thus saving his family, eight in all, amidst the wreckage of the world under God's judgment. Daniel, still a young man, had saved his three friends by interpreting King Nebuchadnezzar's dream 
when none of the other wise men could. This was an early episode in Daniel's career when Nebuchadnezzar had this crazy dream and he went to the wise men and he knew they weren't very wise and that they were kind of rip-off artists. And he said, hey, I had a dream and I want you to interpret it. And they said, sure, tell us the dream. And he goes, you guys are so smart, you tell me the dream and the interpretation. Oh, it's unfair, unfair. And he goes, well, sure, it might be unfair, but I'm going to kill you if you can't do that. So have at it. And so Daniel, he's included in this group of wise men by them. And so him and his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel steps forward and says, God can do that. That's no problem. He's the giver of dreams. He can interpret that. He can tell me the dream. He can interpret the dream. Uh, And God does. He tells Daniel the dream. He interprets the dream. It's a fantastic episode. And so Daniel saves himself and his three friends in in terms of the the Jews there and uh, by de facto saves the others as well. And then there's Job. Job is left really even without a son or a daughter but was himself delivered through calamity. Eight were saved, then four, then one. The math is God's way of emphasizing that the era in which the Jews were living... It's not a time for a hero who's going to save the nation or even others. It's a time for personal righteousness amidst trial and suffering. It's a time for personal introspection uh, and uh, those kinds of things, putting your hope only in the Lord. Now, in verses 15 through 20, God expands upon the judgments that were coming upon Jerusalem. He says in verse 15, If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they empty it, and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would neither uh, deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered, and the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword on that land and say, Sword, go through the land. And I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves would be delivered. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. And so, had Noah, Daniel, and Job lived in Jerusalem at this time, uh, they would have been delivered from the impending judgment on the basis of their personal righteousness, uh, but no one else would be uh, riding their coattails, as it were. Uh, it, it's kind of, to think in the Jewish analogy, uh, you know, we, you see that they're familiar with this idea of heroes. God would raise up heroes after the nation had backslid and was in sin, uh, and and then a guy, he would raise up these men and and get Israel back on track. And then perhaps they're also in the back of your mind if you're in Babylon at this time wondering what God is doing. You might remember the story of Abraham when they came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham said, uh, "Would you destroy it for this many people?" Well, no, not for that. Well, now that I've got your attention, God, you know, would you destroy it for this? And he kept kind of, you know, getting him down to a lower number and stuff. And so, you know, the Jews were holding on to this kind of, in a sense, biblical hope. And yet God is saying, no, I've also spoken to you in Deuteronomy and Leviticus about what I'm going to do once a nation gets to a place of persistent disobedience and unfaithfulness. And the time for judges is past. The time for heroes is past. 
It's a time of personal reckoning. And so the Lord's letting them know that this is not a situation they ought to think that the hero was coming at the last minute. No, they ought to be attending to their own walk with the Lord. No judge would be raised up, only judgment. Now, it's interesting as we're reading this, God gives an assessment of these three men of their time on the earth. In Daniel's case, it was an assessment of his condition up to that point. He said, these men are righteous. Now, what does that mean? Well, first it means that they were declared righteous by God based upon their faith in his promised Savior. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, he uses Abraham as his example when he says that he believed, that is Abraham, and it was accounted to him for personal righteousness. And so people, you know, a lot of times people think, even when I first got saved, I was confused because I'd never read the Bible. I, I knew there was a Bible, but I didn't know anything about it. And I kind of had a cultural idea that the God of the Old Testament was different from the God of the New Testament. I didn't have an understanding of the progressive revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, and I kind of, you know, if you had asked me, I would have said, well, in the Old Testament, you were saved by keeping the law. And then in the New Testament, you, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. And so Paul the Apostle writes the book of Romans and he says, well, actually, people have always been saved exactly the same way by grace through faith in the promised Messiah. And the law had its own purpose and the, the dispensation of the law. But, and he uses Abraham. He says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so uh, God only knows one way of saving people, and that is by grace through faith in the Savior. The Old Testament saint looked forward to the coming of the Savior. We look back upon it in the sense that it's a historical event, but that is how men and women are saved. And when you believe God, when you believe that you're a sinner and that He sent His Son to die for you and to save you, it is credited to you as Righteousness. In other words, God declares you righteous. He declares sinners righteous. Now, calling these men righteous also means that their walk was consistent with their belief. There is also a practical righteousness. They were not perfect, but they were men of integrity. All of this can't help but remind you that your time spent on the earth is going to be reviewed one day. The Bible indicates we will individually stand before what's called the reward seat of Jesus Christ for a review. In the Greek, it's, the, it's called the bema, B-E-M-A. Bema means reward seat. And so I try not to say bema seat because then you're saying the reward seat seat. And, and I don't want those of you who know Greek to think I'm stupider than I am. And so, but uh, anyway, it's the bema of Christ or the reward seat of Christ. And if you've been watching curling on the Olympics... You know, or if you've been watching the Olympics, you know, the, the, po- the whole podium thing where they get their award. That's the idea that they are awarded with something. They are rewarded uh, for having finished, uh, you know, their competition and all that. I'm starting to get curling, by the way. It's, it's, it's really, it's enthralling. It's, it's thrilling. Those, those real athletics there, I'll tell you. You know what I'm talking about? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Raise your hand. I, I, I'm serious. I really am enjoying it. It's quite a sport. Uh, I watched Great Britain had a big lead over Sweden, and then they blew it. They, they let them, what, throw the hammer or whatever. They're, and I feel they come up with all these crazy terms. But anyway, it's fun. So the reward seat. And so 
if you're when you get to the reward seat of Christ, it's pretty clear that you you were a person that was declared righteous. You're a saved individual. And the only issue that's left is reward, uh, whether your walk was consistent with your belief and whether you were men and women of integrity. Now, to help illustrate righteousness, my favorite illustration in the Bible, the Bible describes us in our natural condition as if we had come before God, we, we got all dressed up, we put on our very best, you know, what we used to call our Sunday best, and we went into the presence of God, and when we see God in His glory, and we look at ourselves, we are dressed in just absolutely filthy garments, as if you had just walked out of a cesspool. You'd, you know, on the way to heaven, you fell into a cesspool. How many of you know what a cesspool is? an open sore and uh, and you're just and there's no way of getting clean no matter what you do and you're the most righteous person on earth and you're you're the, you're you know you you've got it all together but when you see God that's what you actually look like because he is perfect and you are not then you get saved you trust Christ for salvation and when you do that God says it's like him taking away those filthy garments and giving you in their place a beautiful white robe of righteousness. You couldn't earn it. You don't deserve it. You can't merit it. God has to make the exchange because he took all of that sin and shame and garbage from you on the cross and he gives you instead this beautiful white robe. And so this illustrates our salvation. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has cover, uh, clothed me rather with the garments of salvation. And so the Lord gives us righteousness when we believe, and then we are to walk in righteousness as a response. In keeping with the garment analogy, it's like we are able to adorn the robe that God has given us. After the resurrection and rapture, when believers are taken to heaven, they are rewarded. And that's why, as you go on in Isaiah 61.10, it reads, I'll read it again from the beginning, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robes of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. And so if you look at that verse by itself, you think, well, okay, it seems that the Lord has given you a robe, uh, but then it, it also seems like you are adorning yourself. And that's the two things that we're talking about. God gives you this robe of righteousness. It represents your salvation. But then your walk, in your walk, you can be rewarded and you can build upon that as if you were putting something beautiful on that garment. And so you're granted or given a spiritual robe of righteousness when you receive Christ as your Savior. And afterwards, you have the privilege of adorning your robe by your righteous acts as His saint. You don't earn or add to your salvation. God forbid we would think that. You simply earn rewards which will adorn your robe. Hal Lindsey compares this to the Roman garments that were popular at the time, the tunic and the toga. The tunic was an inner garment worn under the toga. The righteousness of Jesus is, uh, that is given to you when you receive Christ would be like this inner garment, this tunic. The righteous works that flow from your new nature would be like this outer garment, the toga. And so you, I, I think you're getting it, this, this analogy. It's, it's pretty, pretty simple. 
When we see believers emerge from heaven at the second coming of Jesus Christ, we went through the book of Revelation. It took us about 15 years, but we got through it. It wasn't that long. But there in chapter 19, after the church had been raptured and taken to heaven in chapter uh, 4, and then you get through the whole tribulation, chapter 6 through 19, then at the end of chapter 19, the heavens open and Jesus Christ comes back in His second coming at the end of the seven-year tribulation and the church comes with Him. And we're described, it says, to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so again, you have that same analogy, beautiful fine linen garment that represents our salvation, but also righteous acts that we have performed. The Apostle Paul described it like this, passage you're all familiar with from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be clear, for the day will declare it, that's the day that we stand before the Lord, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is, If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so, again, we're in heaven. uh, We're saved, robe of righteousness, and then the Lord will reward us. The gold, silver, and precious stones Paul described sound a great deal like ornaments and jewels that Isaiah said a bride adorns herself with for her wedding day. And so uh, I like this. I like all of this for lots of different reasons. Number one, it's very simple. It's something I, you know, I can understand. And it puts uh, uh, something as mysteriously beautiful as salvation into a way that I can understand. Uh, but I, I also, it helps me to understand rewards because a lot of times people think, well, after all, you know, what's this big thing about rewards? You're saved. Not that you would sin, that grace might abound, but, I mean, after all, you know, uh, you know do we really need to earn rewards and, and is heaven in a reward kind of a system and, and all of that? And, and we don't understand it until we put it into this analogy of the bride and the bridegroom. Isaiah said, it's like a bride adorning herself for her groom. Uh, and, and think of a wedding. It's really wonderful when the bride emerges in her gown with her hair and her face all in order. What? With just the right adornment. Though from a worldly standpoint we're not to be materialistic, every bride ought to want to look fantastic for her groom. I mean, real, I mean it's just kind of in our culture, right? It's, it's, it's in our, I'd almost say it's in our DNA. You think, wow, every, you know, girls, they, they, they think about getting married from a young age and being a beautiful bride and being like a princess and, and, and you know, it's just a very special day, uh, you know, in the life of, of, uh, of the bride. And, and in our culture, uh, that's the big moment, right? I mean, it's the bride mate, you know, that's everybody stands up and it's, oh, she's so beautiful. Nobody cries when the groom comes out. Did you ever notice that? No one cries until the bride shows up. I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but, you know, but the groom comes out with the pastor and you're standing there. Hey, what's going on? You know, how's it going? You know, you're in some rented tuxedo. 
your shoes don't fit. They're probably not even the shoes that, you know, you, there's some other black shoes, you know, because the, the whole thing just never fits, you know. The vest was for, uh, you know, a, a little person. Uh, I was going to say midget, but I think they're called little people now. Uh, anyway, you know, that kind of a thing. But the bride, I mean, the bride here at the church, we have like a bridal emergency kit, you know, so that you can sew the bride's buttons back on and I kind of hold her together with bailing wire if you have to, you know, because because she's got to, you know, her dress, she gets her dress. Remember when we picked up Mary's dress, they they forgot part of the dress at, at the, you know, and, and I don't think it's all here. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's all here in a box this size. No, I don't think so, you know. And so it was just crazy, you know, and stuff. And, and then there she is, you know, there's the bride and she's just beautiful, as beautiful as she can be. Uh, and, and, and you're the bride of Christ. And, and there's going to be a wedding in heaven. There's going to be this presentation. And so when, you know, you can think in terms of rewards, say, well, I don't need any, I don't need no rewards. You know, I'm just happy to be saved. I'm going to just throw all my stuff back at Jesus anyway. Well, that's one analogy, sure. But there's also this beautiful romantic analogy where you think, I, I, want, to be, I want to be as beautiful as I can be for Jesus. He's given me his robe of righteousness and I want to adorn that. I want to add to that uh, so that when the Lord looks at me, he sees that, that I, I gave him my all. I've, I was faithful. I was uh, tried and true and all of that kind of thing. And so that's, that's why rewards do matter. They represent my pure love for Jesus as his bride. And I want everyone in heaven and on the earth to see how much I owe to my Lord. And now in verse 21, for thus says the Lord God, how much more shall it be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword and famine, wild beast and pestilence to cut off man and beast from it. Now these four severe judgments are reiterated. Again, they should have come as no surprise to any Jew familiar with the Old Testament. The fact God often waits does not nullify what he said he's going to do in his word. Uh, God you know, God is long-suffering. We saw that a few studies back. This is a big argument. People say, well, you know, the world's still going on. People are living and dying. You guys have been talking about prophecy for a long time. I don't see any, you know, I don't see the heavens opening and stuff. The fact that God waits has to do with his long-suffering. It doesn't mean that what he says isn't going to happen. And so that's what he's saying. He says, look, I've, in Deuteronomy, in Leviticus, I said this is what I would do, and now I'm doing it. I waited a good long time, raised up judges, went through this other period of history. I've done a lot to try and keep you guys on track, but now everything I said I was going to do, I'm going to do. Verse 22, Yet behold, there shall be left in it a remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you, and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause that I have done in it, says the Lord God. And that's really an interesting kind of a statement because normally when you read the word remnant, it refers to a small group of righteous individuals who are spared during uh, the, re- the judgment. In this case, that's not true. This is a remnant of ungodly individuals who escaped Jerusalem and end up in Babylon. The exiles who are in Babylon, they're going to observe the ways and the doings of this remnant firsthand 
They're going to see their reprehensible behavior and they will be comforted in the understanding that God acted properly in judging the Jews back in Jerusalem, that he had sufficient cause to bring the four severe judgments upon them. It's fascinating. So these, some are going to escape. They'll make their way down uh, to Babylon or they'll be carried down captive. And when they start complaining about God and, you know, look at what God did. He allowed the temple to be destroyed and, you know, uh, his presence has left the temple and all this. The, the Jews in Babylon are going to say, yeah, and now that we see you guys, it's a wonder he didn't do it sooner. You guys are blowing it. You're a bunch of weird, creepy idolaters. Uh, you know, we thought you guys were doing better. I mean, we're doing better than you and we're in Babylon. We're surrounded by the world. We're on being oppressed. You had the temple. What were you doing with the temple? You had idols in the temple? Wow. It's a wonder you're alive. Why are you alive? Oh, you're alive as an example to me of how creepy idolatry can be. And so they're like the creepy remnant, you know. Hey, who are those people over there? Those are the creepy remnant, you know. I make a movie. I should make a movie, The Creepy Remnant. That'd be cool. It wouldn't be cool, but... Now let's look upon, as we close, I want to look at these three men who were mentioned and, and make a couple of more uh, applications or analogies or whatever you want to call them. Noah and his family. Could circumstances be any worse than they were just prior to the flood? Uh, really. I mean, God says, I am going to destroy the entire planet and everyone on it, Noah, except you and your family. That's, uh, that's a pretty bad circumstance. I mean, have you, are you in bad circumstances? I've been in bad, unusual circumstances, but nothing like the entire planet against you. Uh, nothing like you're really the only eight people who are walking with God on the entire world, which the creation scientists will tell you was several billion people, not just 15 people in a tribe somewhere in a cave. I mean, we're talking the, the pre-flood world was a huge uh, population. Uh, yet Noah kept his family together. Uh, is it, you don't need to raise your hand, but is it hard raising kids in a Christless world? Wow. Imagine what it would be like. Dad, can I go on a sleepover? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so because there's some Nephilim over there and I guess, you know, there's, there's some giants. There's some, some kind of weird demon guys over there that are sleeping with women. I, I, I don't think I, I trust you at that house, you know. I mean, seriously, this is the kind of thing we deal with all the, you know, you know Noah's he's had to raise children. He had to find wives for his boys in this crazy world and yet he did it. They were, pardon the pun, on board with him and the Lord. <laughs> get it they were on board huh? all right how did they survive the pressure now among the things we know about the noahs is that they served the lord together while others were pursuing the things of the world they they built the ark and and, and so you know the one of the ways people say to me well how how are we going to survive how can we get through this you know the world is it's getting wickeder every day there's all these pressures and stuff you and your family decide that you're going to you know be the jo- do the Joshua thing as for me and my house we will serve the lord and then you and your family you build whatever ark it is that god has called you to build in terms of serving the lord 
and making sure that that's a high priority in the midst of a Christ-rejecting world. And, and don't succumb to the pressures that everybody else is succumbing to and in the directions that they're going. And be separate from the world and, uh, and realize that you can make it and that God is going to protect you. Daniel and his friends, <clears throat> their situation was also pretty bleak. It wasn't, in some ways, it was worse then, but not quite as bad as Noah. I mean, you know, but here they were. Daniel's, what, like 16 years old, him and his friends. They're, they're, they're from the aristocracy there in, in, you know, the upper class of Jerusalem. Uh, and they're taken captive, and they're thrown into Babylon, they have to go, uh, they can't be homeschooled anymore. They have to go to public school. And, and it's a weird public school where they're learning, you know, occult practices and how to divine dreams and all this crazy phrenology problem and all this weird stuff. And then on top of that, they have to eat food that they've never eaten before. You know, it's like, hey, here's your diet. You know, it's, it's filled with all the delicacies of the world and, and uh, you know, things that are prohibited. And so Daniel says... All right, enough is enough. I'm, I'm really sorry about this. We're, with the school thing, we can handle everything. You know, I understand we're in cab, but I can't eat that food. Me and my friends, we can't eat that food. And the guard says, you know, if you don't eat that food, you guys are going to get unhealthy and they're going to have my head because I'm responsible for this. And I said, let me make you a deal. You give us some crazy gruel to eat for a while, just some pulse, you know, and uh, see what happens. And, and so they do, and they, man, they're, you know, Wow. So everybody thinks, wow, I got to find that stuff. You know, Pulse. Let's eat Daniel Pulse, you know, or whatever. But it was just, you know, it was just the Lord. He, and he kept them holy in that environment. They purposed in their hearts to trust the Lord and they believed God would help them. It's an encouragement for us in America to be part of a fellowship of believers who are willing to say no to the things of the world and to remain separated unto God. Just, they just said no. They said, look, you know, in a sense, it's a, it's a question of Christian liberty, you might say, because, you know, there's certain things that they didn't say no to, but then at some point they drew a line and said, you know, we, just, I, we just can't eat that. We're sorry. We just can't. We don't have the liberty to do that. And, and do, what else, do what you need to, but we're just not going to eat your food. Uh, and so all of us, you know, we, we need to be a part of a, a group of people, a fellowship of people who draw some important lines at some point and say, this is it. We can have liberty here, but th- this is a point where we can't go beyond. And, and we are going to remain separate from the world. And then Job. Man, that guy's name is forever associated with trial and suffering even though he did nothing to deserve it. In fact, he, you know, the whole reason that he went through the trial was because he was such an upstanding guy. The devil comes and he says, Job will hate you if you take away his, his prosperity, his physical health and all, everything you've prospered him with. And God says, no, he won't. You don't understand the heart at all, Satan. Uh, that, that, none of those things matter. Oh, they, they have a temporary effect. You're going to see Job, you know, kind of get, he's going to have a little struggle here in his attitude, you know, and stuff, but, but he's going to come through this like gold. He's going to, he's going to, at the end of this, he's going to say, I had heard of the Lord before with the hearing of my ear, but now I've seen him and I've come forth as gold. He's tried me in the fire and I've come forth as gold. And, and I, I think I can speak for Job. I think if you had asked Job at the end of that trial, would he, you know, rather have avoided it? I think he'd absolutely say no. No, because what I've, what I've gotten out of it is so much more precious than anything that I had before that this world had to offer. 
And so Job stands for all those whose situation is less than ideal, whose family and friends have already been undermined by the world. Uh, Sometimes you are alone. Sometimes it's just you and the Lord. But Job forever there sitting on that ash heap reminds you that that's always enough. If you're reduced to scraping boils with a potsherd out in the garbage heap of your city and you still know the Lord, that's enough. Because uh, life is a vapor. It's a puff of smoke. It appears for a moment, then it vanishes away and will be with the Lord forever. And we want to come forth as gold. We want to see Him refine us. And so these three guys, uh, really very, very contemporary for us. You know, and so family, church family, and then your individual walk with the Lord, uh, those things can, can be strong uh, as the world continues to deteriorate. Um, God is... I don't know what's going to happen to the United States. I'm not one of those who wants to get up on a soapbox and you know, talk about how we're ripe for judgment and all that. I didn't spend a lot of time on that in here because that's God's doing. God said He will judge nations that are in persistent unfaithfulness. And you know, at some point... Maybe he's already judging our nation. I don't know. What I do know is that we're to be like Noah, we're to be like Daniel, we're to be like Job, no matter what's going on around us. Uh, And um, in our case, uh, unlike the Jews, we can deliver other people with us. We can, by our testimony, share with them what's happening, and they can get saved and and come in uh, before it's too late. Amen? Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. We are going to share in communion now, and uh, we like, here at Calvary Hanford, we like you to come and get your own elements rather than us pass them out to you. We like you to partake at your own pace, Uh, and so as soon as I pray for the elements, I'll get down and get mine, and then you guys can start coming up, uh, get the cup and get the cracker, go back to where you're seated, and then either you and the Lord uh, pray or Pray with those that you've come with or grab some people around you and pray one for another. Uh, Take the bread, drink the cup, and then we'll kind of move from there into a time of worship. Communion, Paul described it in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 as a time of introspection. We look within and see what the Lord is doing in our life. We look back and remember what the Lord has already done in saving us. We also look forward in terms of the Lord's coming. Uh, we, we do this as a proclamation that the Lord is coming and that we uh, want His strength and His power in our lives to walk with Him and to, to earn those rewards, as it were, so that we can adorn ourselves. Uh, and so enjoy this time and uh, let God use it in your heart. Father, thank You for this time of uh, study and worship and also now communion, Lord, as we come to Your table. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's partake.